Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 18, where we'll be revisiting the film Tomorrow Never Dies. I need to say this right off the bat. This is the most conflicted I've ever been about a Bond film going into one of these. Surely not. I think so, yeah. Okay. I was... Do you know what? I actually kind of expected that. Does that mean you you expected me to be conflicted? Or are you saying I'm also conflicted? A little bit of both. But coming from Goldeneye, this film was very interesting. And I think... Given our opinions of Goldeneye, particularly yours, I think uh, I, I kind of knew maybe what you were feeling. Well, there was no Oromoth, so straight away that's minus points. Uh, yeah. He showed up for a bit. Like in a Gogol style show up where he's just at the end. It's like, hello, I'm here, <laughs> I'm back. I survived like on the train. It. Yeah. Or maybe like a sort of force ghost Oromov. Ah, oh, that would have been good. Yeah. If he was just like on a plank of wood on the sea and he just smiles and nods at James. Yeah, that would have been good. But no, I I um I also have a lot of I had a bit of trouble trying to place this in my rankings at the end of watching this. And to be honest, I'm still a bit unsure. We'll see how this recording goes, this podcast, I might change my mind. That's kind of where I'm at. I have a place where I think I'm going to put it. But like I said at the end of the last episode, this could go anywhere, really. Or going into the film, it could go anywhere because this is a a childhood film, for sure, just like Goldeneye. It was one I watched when it kind of came out. Uh, I was only five when it came out, so I don't really remember it coming out. But still, I watched it a lot as a kid. Uh, So there's definitely a lot of nostalgia tied to it, like Goldeneye. But at the same time, this is not the one I ever really return to when it comes to Bond. I would always just like watch Goldeneye and be happy with that. And that would be enough. So like, yeah, actually maybe because I don't return to it, maybe that means I'm going to rank it lower. I don't know. It's just so many emotions. Too many emotions. I think for a lot of people, this is the uh, one of the maybe forgotten, maybe not forgotten. It's not that old, but I think it definitely is in the shadow of its predecessor. And I think it often gets a bit overlooked because of that. Yes, I think both this and The World Is Not Enough is kind of like that. Tomorrow Never Dies because Goldeneye is considered one of the classics. World Is Not Enough because Die Another Day is considered one of the worst. So they're both living (laughs) in big shadows, but very different shadows. Yeah, that's an interesting sandwich I've got there. Yeah, and it's like, I, I wanted to like this, but I think what makes me conflicted about it is the fact that we have already watched 17 of these Bond films And now it is all about kind of ranking them and kind of having it exist in my mind alongside them, which makes it complicated. I think if I just watched this on like a random Sunday, I I would probably just take it for what it is and move on. But when you compare it to the whole library of Bond films, like where it sits among them, that's a massive, very different question compared to, was this film a good time? In all honesty, I'm finding it far too difficult to do that now. (laughs) I think... Yeah, despite that being the whole purpose of this podcast, it is getting so difficult, mainly just because of time. You know, you, it's it's that thing about whether it's you really enjoyed it because it's fresh in your memory or is it the other ones who actually enjoyed more, but because it was a little while ago. In our case, it could be weeks ago or in other people's case, it could be months or even years ago they seen another Bond film. Uh, how do you even start to compare that? 
So I think I'm taking it. My my mantra thus far has been gut instinct, pretty yes. much. It's just been gut instinct at the at the end of watching it, and I've tried not to overthink it because as soon as you start to compare back to this one and this one and this one, you just start to get so tangled in in uh, comparing things. It's it's a mess. Yes, I think that's the right way to go, but. Jumping ahead a little bit, and I think what makes it conflicted for me as well is that in terms of the tone of the, like the last five or six films, they have not gone in a linear order. And I would say, like, I was thinking about this because I only finished watching it like half an hour ago, I'm going to admit. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there I was having a snack in the kitchen, be like, hmm, tomorrow never dies, uh, thinking about the film. <laughs> but yeah. in terms of the tone, like, it's almost like they didn't go in this linear fashion from the Roger Moore era to now so if you went like campy bond to gritty bond you would kind of go like say a few to a kill roger moore it would then go tomorrow never dies the most campy film since then and then the living daylights uh golden eye and then license to kill mm. unless you disagree with that no i totally agree okay, <laughs> i think you, you hit the nail on the head there that's yeah that's where i think the conflicted comes in tomorrow never dies is surprisingly campy um and that's not a bad thing but i didn't expect that yeah i think well first of all i who knows who this director was i have no clue who this guy was roger spotterswood was his name or something like that <laughs> never heard of him Would, nope. i wouldn't have even been able to tell you his name before watching this completely forgot uh but i think clearly from the success of goldeneye and they probably got a little bit more comforted by knowing the audience is still there and therefore probably went a bit backwards potentially with the tropes and stuff, which is why it does have that that stronger link to the Roger Moore films and, and that sort of stuff. And it does kind of clash when you have, you know, the GoldenEye stuff come just before it. But I do think it, it kind of finds its own place quite nicely. Uh, I, I did notice the sort of change in tone, but I didn't hate it. Yeah, it's a very interesting case, to say the least. So let's get into it. Uh, this is actually a very short film. Or it might be the shortest one since maybe From Russia With Love, I want to say. I definitely felt that, and I appreciated it. Let me take a look. Yeah, so From Russia With Love was 115 minutes. Goldfinger was 110. Oh, wow. Did not expect that. Uh, so this is shorter than, like, Fundable, apparently. This is only 119 minutes long compared to like the 130 minutes we got from other films let late. me tell you that that 10 minutes makes such a difference it really oh my, does it really does honestly uh, this was such a nice surprise to finish and be like oh that was it okay great all right then next cool and then they go home and yeah they actually do okay so we'll we'll start off so we got the circles and it's the same walk from the last film i believe they haven't updated that from Goldeneye, but what they have updated is the song. So we just get kind of straight up the Bond theme. It's just a traditional version. The remix they had in Goldeneye, that's completely gone. That sort of soundtrack is also kind of completely gone. And they just go with a more straight up version of the Bond theme, which was cool to hear. And looking back on it, it feels extremely appropriate to do that because of this film's tone. It probably did make more sense to just do the traditional Bond theme. Yeah. Uh, it's again very very good gun barrel it was as you say pretty much exactly the same as before uh 
And there is definitely elements of that older. There's there's some parts in this film that definitely sound like from Russia of Love. So they are going back to that sort of sound. Yes, there's lots to discuss with the music, but we'll we'll get into that later. Uh, as of for now, the circles go onto this airfield. It's quite small airfield, but it's like this military airfield where it's it's somewhere up in the mountains where there's trucks and there's fighter jets and there's weapons and we get text on screen that says a terrorist arms bazaar on the Russian border. And I was like, that's so lame. <laughs> that's so lame. Make up some sort of Russian name. I don't care. Do what you normally do. Just make it up. I don't want just like a terrorist arms bazaar. It, it feels so like, it just didn't feel like this place existed. It, it's a small detail, but normally in Bond film, like films, they would just make it up. And I was like, oh yeah, that looks Russian. Fine. Um, but this time they didn't. And I was like, that's a bit lame. I was just quite surprised that they started off with Russia. I just think, get enough of Russia. We had Russia a lot in the last film. No more Russia. <laughs> but yeah, I, at least they didn't make up a very uh, hard to say country like in License to Kill. Well, that helps. But it does kind of tie into what you're saying with Russia in the last film is that, uh, again, I don't want to compare this film too much to Goldeneye which I did do when watching this film, but that's kind of like a massive trap. If you want to enjoy this film, don't compare it to GoldenEye because it's a very different beast. Um, but it did make me think the fact that this opening was somewhere in Russia and was in the mountains and it was super snowy. I'm like, that's a bit of a... That's a little bit too close what we saw last time. Yeah, yeah. But it just doesn't visually quite pop. But so I, I've, I'm not sure if that was deliberate or not to tie it to Goldeneye. But this is quite a similar setting. So we see a camera. There's a little spy camera that pops out of the snow, and it's going quite crazy here. It's like going all the way around and pointing at all these different weapons and missiles and zooming in. It's, it's kind of moving on its own quite a bit. And we see a lot of Russians with all these turrets, lots of different weapons and. We go to MI6 and this big operation room at MI6 and we see everyone's kind of looking at the footage. All these different employees are looking at the footage and there's a man here which he becomes a recurring character at MI6 but I don't think we ever hear his name for this film. Yeah, I thought at first they'd recast Tanner but he's not Tanner. Yeah, he kind of fills that role but there's just no Tanner. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know who he is. Yeah, I don't think we ever hear his name. I know he's in the next film. I'm not sure about Die Another Day, but this is someone that actually is a little bit recognisable if you know the Pierce Brosnan films, but really he just serves the role as MI6 person who says the stuff, what's going on. <laughs> that was on the script, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much so. So, yeah, so the man is explaining, like, oh, there's lots of weaponry and we have weaponry from all these different countries, from China, from Russia, from America, and M's there. And is saying, oh, I want IDs of these men at this meeting. Who, the, who are these people? So the man is explaining that one of them is a chemical expert. And his name does come up on screen on the screen. But I didn't write it down because as far as I'm aware, he's just not a character. Uh, but the next person who is an American is a character. And he is called Henry Gupta. Yeah. Is it yeah. Gupta, right? Uh, well, in the film, they say Gupta. Gupta. Which isn't much better, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I they say he's an American specifically, but that's not really an American last name. Gupta or Gupta. 
I just kept thinking of Augustus Gloop. Like, so I don't know. Yeah, it's... Hmm. Because there is a German character, but this guy's just not German. Actually, yeah, they have... You would think that the American guy would be called Stamper, and the yeah. other guy would be... I don't know. Someone got that the wrong way around. But yeah, Henry... Maybe. I'll say Gupta, because that's what they say in the film. Um, Henry Gupta. And the MI6 guy is all like, oh, this is the... He practically invented tech terrorism. Is a cyber terrorist. Is no good. Um, so M then sees a red box on the screen, which uh, Henry is holding. So he's like, zooming on that box. What is that? And they explain that that is a an American encoder, which they use to control satellites or whoever has it can control satellites. And it's something the Americans have lost. Um, so now they've seemed to have found it. So M goes up to this admiral in this control room. And the Admiral's like, thank you very much, Em. You've done your part. This is now a military operation. We're taking over here. And the Admiral turns and speaks to this Russian officer. I think he's Russian. I don't know. I don't think he comes from a, like, a country near Russia. I would assume he is just straight Russian. Oh, yeah, I think so. The guy that comes back later on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so the Admiral starts talking to him and the Russian officer saying, oh, we have an, uh, an election coming up, so there can't be any loss of lives. So... Instead, Admiral says, let's use a, a naval strike to take out this base. Which I didn't quite get what they were talking about then. If they're like, there can't be any loss of life, but they don't mind bombing the base and killing everyone. Yeah, I, I had no clue. I just uh, <laughs> I let that let that flow over me. Yeah, I'm assuming they just meant leave no one alive or make sure that none of these weapons are used on civilians. It's It doesn't matter too much. Um, so the Admiral orders a naval strike, but M steps in and says, well, my man isn't finished yet. But the Admiral's like, well, this is happening, so get your man out of there. Uh, there's a lot of very dramatic music going on for this. This is quite high energy. This is a very different type of feeling where it's all the uh, weapons did is going down and the Admiral and M are arguing with each other and it's like, get your man out of there with the music going on. Um, so we then cut to the naval ship which has been ordered to fire, they prepare to fire, they fire the missile, and we hear that there's eight minutes until the missile will reach its target. So they radio their man, who they are calling White Knight, uh, is the codename of this man, so they're all like, get out of there! And then there's a little bit of an argument back and forth between MI6 and White Knight, and White Knight is saying, you need to wait, and it's like, wait for what? And at this moment, they then see a load of nuclear torpedoes on a fighter jet comes into screen. And they're all like, oh, oh, dear. Uh, Uh Uh-oh. That's that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's not good. Uh, Because they're nuclear torpedoes, if they go off, it would be huge. And I think one of them says it would be like 10 times worse than Chernobyl or something like that. That would be a very bad thing if we blow this up. So Amal's like, abort the missiles. No, no, no. We're not doing this anymore. Uh, But they can't. It's too late. So we get some shots of the missiles going over these mountains, heading towards the base, and M orders White Knight to get out of there. Um, But we then cut to the base itself, where a man is looking to light up a cigarette, someone lights up for him, and it's Bond. And he punches him, and it's like, filthy habit. So very similar stuff for Bond, where he's like knocking out a guard, and doing a one-liner, just like the toilet stuff in the last film. We kind of get that again. Yeah, and I suppose it's now official that Bond has... He's uh, he's quit smoking. He's... Yeah, um, yeah I guess enough. so, right? Yeah, because I think 
Timothy Dalton definitely smoked. So I guess with Piers, they they thought, you know what, let's be a good role model for children finally <laughs> and stop smoking. Finally. <laughs> do do everything else terrible. Smoke, uh, sleep with women, drink loads of alcohol, kill with people, but just stop with the smoking. Well, yeah, we literally have a scene where he's by himself doing shots of vodka. So like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> alcoholism, that's great. The smoking, no, no, no. No, no, no. I don't. That's something I honestly never thought about until we did this. I think you might have mentioned it in previous ones about the smoking thing, but legitimately never ever thought about that when it comes to the Pierce Brosnan films. But you're totally right. They've removed that, and it looks like that's never coming back. At least for Pierce Brosnan, I don't think it comes back for Craig either. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think he might smoke, but he's not like a smoker in the same way. Yeah. So yeah, so Bond using his lighter, he throws the lighter at some barrels nearby and it blows up so it was probably some sort of q lighter explosive most of the gadgets in this is an ordinary thing that blows up so i guess that's just the start of that uh, and this has caused a bit of a panic uh, bond jumps on a truck he plants plants an explosive on there people start like shooting i i'm assuming they're all shooting at bond but there's just a comical amount of people just shooting that i don't know I think it would have made more sense if they started shooting each other and Bond was just in the middle of that, but I'm not too sure if that's actually the case. Yeah, it, it does kind of escalate very, very quickly. Um, I don't know, actually. I think, I guess, because, yeah, there, there's like two sides meeting at this place, so... Yeah. Yeah, they're shooting at each other, but then also Bond, I don't know. I'm not too sure. With somehow the of action scenes go in this film, I wouldn't be surprised if they are all shooting at Bond, but to me it would make sense that Bond has caused an explosion which means we get the old trope of, ah, you're going back on the deal. Bang, bang, bang. Like that yeah. sort of thing. Um, so Bond is causing a lot of chaos. He's He blows up a truck and we see MI6 are looking at this. The Apple's looking at it and he's like, what the hell is he doing? And M's like, his job. As <laughs> everything's going crazy. That's a very good M impression. I think I might have said that last time, but you know, you really <laughs> nailed Judy Dench there. <laughs> Let's let's not have the sentence you really nailed, Judy Dench. There, <laughs> officially recorded. Let's not. Don't you put that on me. Cut that. Cut that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get that cut. <laughs> I like you, Judy, but it's not. It's not like that. Uh, yeah. So, so everything's going off. Lots of machine guns, and Bond gets to the jet, the one that has the nuclear torpedoes on them. So he knocks out the guy in the back seat. He, I think, he throws the pilot out. Uh, machine guns some more soldiers lots more explosions all going on and he gets in the cockpit of the jet and sets up and turns on the gatling guns of this jet and spins to the side and is shooting at everyone more explosions he then fires a load of missiles even more explosions uh, and we hear the only one minute to impact so he only has one minute to get away so he starts going down the runway but as he's doing that we see another pilot a very evil looking man in a different jet uh, follows him so this ends up with well we get some more shots of the missiles through the the mountains as well we get a lot of shots of the missile that the naval uh, people fired going through the mountains it's very high energy cutting between that and this so it ends up with bond and this evil pilot who i'll just refer to him as evil pilot um, at two sides of a runway and bond goes really quick to take off and he does take off and the evil pilot takes off as well and follows them. Uh, but the person behind Bond, the co-pilot they knocked out, wakes up. So Bond is being choked. Uh, and Bond is... I think I might have this slightly wrong, actually. I think Bond pulls up and the missile from the naval ship lands and explodes. 
And then Bond goes through the explosions. All the camera feed cuts out at MI6. They don't know what happened. But Bond comes out of the explosion. The Bond theme plays. Everyone's happy. But the co-pilot starts choking Bond. And the man, the evil pilot, starts shooting at Bond as well. Bond's plane is spinning around. He's like controlling it with his legs because he's trying to use his hands to not die. Uh, so he manages to spin in a way that avoids a missile that he got fired at him. And this then leads to the evil pilot eventually losing Bond. So Bond avoids the missile. The evil pilot can't find him anymore. He's all confused. But we see that Bond is actually underneath the other plane. And he manages to hit the eject button for the back seat, luckily. And that shoots the co-pilot up into the other plane, the other jet. That causes them to explode. And Bond reports in saying, hey, where would the Admiral like his bombs to be delivered? And everyone at MO6 is like, yay, Bond. And he has saved the day. So... <laughs> it, I mean, it's not bad. But... Yay, Bond. Yeah. Yay, Bond. But I wasn't that into this. I think the main problem I have with this is that it's trying too hard. Mm. Where I don't want to compare it to Goldeneye, but that's going to happen. Where Goldeneye was a very slow build that built up to the excitement. You know, it was very quiet. It had stunts that were quiet. And then it was building things up and there was some story stuff going on as well. And then it became the big explosive craziness and that felt very satisfying to go through that. And even like The Spy Who Loved Me was kind of like that a little bit. This just feels like all action, all excitement, all the time. And it takes a little bit of the sting of it away. I didn't quite get sucked into it. And I think it really wants you to be super excited. And it's not bad, but I think it's just trying too hard. And I couldn't quite get sucked into it as much as I think it wanted you to. I think trying too hard is a good way of putting it. I don't mind how quick it is. You know, the idea of the, the the missiles incoming and that's the timer. And as you say, there's all these shots of it coming over the the mountains and it, it keeps it moving. And I think that's good. But but maybe you just did need a moment or two to breathe. One thing I did like, though, and I was trying to work out whether this was the first time this has happened. And I guess it might have been given, you know, technology has now improved to that extent, that MI6 or whoever was in that room exactly, security, are watching Bond live during a mission. Have mm. we ever seen that before? Oh, I don't think so, no. Yeah. I'm not even so sure if we've had him, like, radio in. I'm pretty sure it's always... Uh... Well, you have, like, the Spy Love Me is the one that keeps coming to mind, where they radio to Bond saying, we need you back here. And then he does something completely independently, but they're never really... There's always, like, this big sense that Bond is disconnected almost right like that he yeah. is very independent yeah so that's kind of our first glimpse of that and and getting live reactions and an actual kind of interplay between bond and uh, m back in back in london so i like that bit and as i say i liked the the missile timing and, and just keeping it moving i do wish i mean it is another plane based pre-tile sequence though really you get the stuff on the ground briefly but it's still more planes. It's just so many planes. I'm trying to think of the next one. The next one's a boat, at least. So <laughs> it does change vehicle. Yes, at the very least. But I, I don't know. I quite like the plane stuff. But again, it's another tie to GoldenEye where it's like it ends with like a plane bit in the Russian mountains. It's like that mm. can't be a coincidence. That feels too 
on the nose. But I did like that moment of Bond ejecting the guy and blowing up the, the jet above him. That does look very cool. I, like, I thought that was a nice moment. It's got nice moments in here, but yeah, I wish it just toned it down a bit. Like, I was kind of talking about the explosions a lot, and it's because it's just ridiculous. It just feels too much. It feels a little bit forced. But there's still, like, good moments in here, and I, I especially like that one. It is crazy to think that uh, Roger Moore didn't like A View to a Kill because of all the shooting. Probably all the shooting that Zorin does at the end. And then you skip forward a few Bond films and it's just totally, it's so many scenes where Bond is just mowing down people with machine guns in both hands or spinning around in a, yeah, in a jet with the, the missiles flying. I don't think Roger Moore would have liked that very much, but it's just a different time. It, there is a lot of that in this film though, where it is just straight up shooting, create, like without any sort of impact. And I guess that's kind of what this has as well. Yeah, like, it's interesting that this is the era, the Pierce Brosnan films, where they dilute that stuff. Like, yeah, they did do that before. There was definitely a lot of times where, in Sean Connery's era, where they would just, like, shoot a man, and that's that, and you had the big fight. But this is so aggressive in your face. It's GoldenEye did it, and now Tomorrow Never Dies arguably does it more. Just, like, so much, just like, bang, bang, yeah, yeah, like a video game. It's pretty much a video game. Yeah, yeah, because the older films, they would keep it for the, the final villain lair assault. Whereas now it's it's peppered through willy-nilly. Very anyway. willy-nilly, yeah. Very willy-nilly. Um, but anyway, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind the pre-tail sequence. It was, it was fine. It was good, I suppose. Not yes. as good as GoldenEye, though. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be as bad as you with, with GoldenEye stuff. But we'll see. We'll see. I'll try not to compare too much. Um, then we move into the title itself. And I want to get the song out of the way first. I usually say the visuals, but... The song, which is Tomorrow Never Dies by Sheryl Crow, the one who sung this. And the reason why I want to say it first is just because I don't I don't really like it very much. Um, I actually kind of, I thought I liked this song more than I actually did when I listened to it. I think the thing I like most about it is just the intro where it, it I don't know how to describe how it sounds, but you just sort of like, it's like a falling sound, I think, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that. That's such a good start to it where you're getting the visuals coming in but then i actually realized i don't quite like how cheryl crow sounds <laughs> i don't really like her voice and as far as i'm aware this song came quite late even in terms of uh the bond production with with songs and stuff uh this this song came quite late asking cheryl crow to do it they had another one which got vetoed in the end but that's the one you hear in the credits um and I think that can that kind of shows through. It does seem a little bit of a of like a just get it done, just just quickly rush it, get it, we need it out sort of thing. I don't mind it, but I didn't like it as much as I thought I used to. Well, if you allow me to use a, a well worn phrase, this is like my ultimate guilty pleasure Bond theme. <laughs> okay, I. When I knew I was watching Tomorrow Never Dies this week, I've had this song stuck in my head all week. <laughs> like that's the thing they're always earworms they always are i can't yeah I, i'm the same yeah i i was quite surprised because uh back when we watched that bond anniversary show back in october at the royal albert hall obviously we saw a lot of different bond music so that got me on a tear with listening to a lot of bond themes and that was one of the ones i listened to the most it's not one they even did live but when going back to bond themes i kind of really like this song but i'm not going to super like, i'm not going to defend it that much 
you're right, Sheryl Crow singing is weird. And outside of that main riff, a lot of the music is just kind of all right. And it kind of meanders a little bit as well. And it's trying to be mm. like seductive. Like its tone is a mess. Like it doesn't quite know what it, if it wants to be the, the sexy theme or if it wants to be kind of epic and big. And it just jumps between the two with this awkward singing over the top. Like it's not a good song, but I like it. But I would, what I will also say, even though I do like it, in the context of this film, this is kind of very strange because it's usually backwards for me. But this song, I think, is better separately outside of the film than it is inside the film. Like, I think putting mm. it alongside the credit sequence actually makes it worse. And I actually quite like it separate to this, which is strange because normally it's the other way around. Normally I like it better in the film because it's more exciting. It's more tied to Bond. But I think this song is actually stronger outside of it. I'm not actually too surprised by you saying that. It, go, it kind of goes back to what I just mentioned about this, the switch of uh, artist for the song because the actual elements you hear throughout the film soundtrack that really mix, like bring it all together is that Surrender song, which was by Katie Lang. And if you hear that, you'll hear it in the whole soundtrack of the film. And then that's it works because it's actually used properly and, and nicely. Uh, whereas this one does just sort of stick out a bit like a sore thumb. I, 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 yeah, I, I get what you mean where it's just a good song to hear separately. Um, but it does have a sort of clunkiness to it. I think tone, the most yeah. interesting thing for me about this uh, song, especially comparing to Surrender, we could talk for ages about comparing the two, but this kind of Surrender stuck to the style of Bond themes that we had seen since License to Kill which was take the 60s style and just modernize it. This one doesn't feel like they did that at all. Like mm. this feels like almost a very different type of Bond song. It doesn't have the horns in the same way. It has a very different type of riff and it does feel James Bond still, but it's almost like the start of a different style of Bond theme that never actually continued because the next one is, <laughs> again, more of a modernized Bond theme. But this no longer feels like a updated 60s theme it sounds more like a 90s song that's kind of bond-esque yeah this this whole film is very 90s and you know what i kind of like it i do kind of like it it's that thing where they say at the early part of a decade doesn't quite it still feels like the previous decade and okay it was 1995 so it's still <laughs> you're getting halfway through it but golden i definitely it definitely had 90s elements to it but it did also feel like that could have been a late 80s film Whereas this is just, this is so 90s. The soundtrack, yeah. the, the tech. I mean, we've got a four by three camera feed <laughs> right at the beginning, like 25 FPS high tech stuff. And it's like, yep, this is definitely 1997. Um, but yeah, in terms of the visuals, we've got more Daniel Kleinman. Uh, want to talk about the 90s, let's talk about the yeah, visuals. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really need to say very much about this because it's, again, it's just really good. I said enough in the last one about this breath of fresh air, this new guy that comes in using computer generated imagery, using it well, linking into the films. In this one, you have uh, sort of, well, it starts with the TV, like a TV smash, like glass smashing. And then we go into this sort of cyberspace looking area. There's a focus on pixels, on static, um, X-ray thing, X-ray guns, X-ray uh, watches, all the guns that kind of link into the the bazaar, I guess, that we just saw with all the arms dealing. Um, then you have, yeah, 
the the CGI women emerging from the circuit board. I love that old style CGI. Like oh, of the kind course of you do. It's it's just a such. Oh, it's when you go back and, and uh, see. I don't know. There's um. This is a, a random reference, but there's a Peter Gabriel song, and the music video for that. Oh, what's it called now? Steam, I think it was. Again, it features all of this old, very early CGI stuff, and it looks so clunky, but it's so charming. And you're getting a little bit of this here with the circuit board stuff, and it just looks so cool. I love it. I don't know if cool is the word I would use. <laughs> oh. but, but I overall agree that this is a strong opening because of the the visual themes that all tie together. But where last time it was like orange with a bit of purple, this is very white. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> I thought it was very cool and it tied in with the x-rays and like having the x-ray stuff is really awesome but to me that's why it was so distracting when the cyber like the microchip cgi women came out because i don't think it matches with the other stuff so you go from like these white backgrounds and this technology to just then like this woman pulling out of this like silver microchip and processor or something and it was a it was a little bit too distracting you're right like there is a charm to it because it is such basic cgi but at the same time i kind of i think visually it separates itself from the other things that that remove me out of the thematic uh, elements that they're trying to establish so i'm not super into it but still like this follows on from golden eye of being more consistent more tied together and that stuff is really good and still really solid for this one are you saying you missed the circuit board lady later on in the film? She she was there. Oh, was she? She was in the party in the background. You might have missed ah, her. Ah, right. Yeah, everyone was staring at her. That uh, makes sense. <laughs> no, it's very much early early um, graphics card box art vibes from that, if anyone knows what I'm talking about. That's, that's what I get from that. Anyway, it was really good. It was really good. Let's move on. Um, after the title sequence... We are in the South China Sea, we're told on screen, and we're looking at the HMS Devonshire, which is a, a Royal Navy um, vessel. And it looks like it's just sort of in a, a routine um, patrol because we do eventually see that some of the, the crew, they were just having their dinner. They were in the canteen. They were getting some chips with their, <laughs> with their dinner. But uh, before that, we see two Chinese fighter jets, uh, MIGs, they keep calling them, I guess is the type, um, fly over the ship, which causes concern for the captain, obviously, um, to sound the alarm because they think that they might have hostile intent. The pilots in these uh, Chinese jets, they reply through to um, the ship and say that, hang on a minute, you're in, you're in our waters, you're in Chinese territorial waters, and they threaten to attack unless this British ship goes back, turns around and heads back to a Chinese port. Um, which confuses all the crew on this ship because to them, on their GPS satellite coordinates, uh, they're all good. They insist that they're they're in international waters and everything's fine. So they message back to the the jets and say that they will defend themselves if attacked. So there's sort of some escalation happening here between these two um, these two sides. And whilst that's happening. Uh, we get uh, a shot in Hamburg at the Carver Media Group Network. Um, it's a big building. And inside you see a computer screen. And on it is basically exactly the same thing that we just saw on the ship that the crew were looking at. It's a sort of map of uh, 
you know, where all these, where the ships are and where the, the jets are and all these satellite orbit lines. And, and there's a man typing away uh, at this computer, obviously hacking. And you know it's hacking because there's this kind of display next to him with all these numbers ticking and making a noise. And if anything makes a noise, it's obviously a hack. I love how they just, they do need to add on. I think it happened with, well, there was another gadget or something in a previous Bond film that they were like, we just, it has to make a noise. Audiences need to know that this is a techie thing. Just make it buzz or make it sound effect with it. You know, <laughs> uh, the thing that comes to mind when you say that is the spy who loved me when they were in the tanker with the subs. But I'm not sure if that's what you're thinking of. It could well be. I think there's probably multiple. It's I think such, there's, yeah, I think yeah. It's just, yeah, there's this little thing making noise. So there's, there's this guy who's currently doing something. But we do um, know who that is because that's Henry. It's Gupta. That's Gupta. right. It's Gupta, yeah. And I guess with that, you also kind of know it's something to do with the, the GPS encoding um, that was mentioned in the MI6 bit. So he is interfering with the satellites and we we definitely get that, a sense of that, because we then see two satellites in space. One of them is the American one. And then the other one is uh, a branded one with CMGN. So that's Carver's Media Group Network satellite. And uh, we then also see this very strange looking black stealth ship. I say stealth because it, it looks like a stealth bomber. So all black, kind of uh, it looks carbon fiber-esque in a way. But it's got a big gap in the middle. I had to look up what this type of boat is. Uh, it's a catamaran which I think we might, that has come up in a, in a I remember saying that before, but I, <laughs> I have memory like a sieve. But yeah, it's basically a boat that has two, two sides and then just a big gap straight through the middle of it. And inside it, there is a very big, scary looking drill thing being lowered into the water. It's kind of this gigantic bit of tech, which has these three grinding things on the front. It looks very scary. And when you see that in a Bond film, it's like, that's definitely going to play a part. You know something like that is going to come back later on. I mean, come on, it's got to. Um, but yeah, in this uh, in this ship, this stealth ship, there's a, a white-haired man who is Stamper. We've mentioned his name, that's Stamper, um, who tells the captain that they're ready to launch this, this big drill and that although the ship itself that they're in is invisible to radar, this sea drill isn't, so they have to be quick, this is what the captain's saying. So they're definitely undercover to some extent. Uh, we do see that this ship is actually right next to the Devonshire ship. So that's who they're interfering with. And they're planning to launch this drill uh, the next time the uh, Chinese jets fly past. And when they do that, they'll trick the British into thinking that the Chinese have actually torpedoed them. So again, they're just playing playing the sides against each other. He go, Stamper, the, the, the German guy, goes to report in to someone in Hamburg uh, over television and tell them that uh, phase one of the plan is done and we kind of see who he's reporting to albeit from behind um, kind of backlit with his glasses reflecting looking very ominous um, which is quite interesting when you you know it does end up being the main villain so they, they do a good job in making him look quite suspicious and Blow, well not maybe not blowfold s but just you know hiding him to begin with i think uh some of these shots where you do see you know, close-ups of his eye later on and and just backlit shots like that it looks quite good i don't know 
if it was a different person doing like cinematography for this for this film but there are definitely some nice shots in here i don't know I, I i feel like it was a little bit pointless due to how this villain plays out like i wasn't buying that at all like well, who is this mysterious man maybe it's because i know the film but like he he then this isn't like a blow like you say it's not blowfeld where they're building up to a reveal they're just keeping him a bit shadowy for the time yeah. being which i think just doesn't match his character based on uh how it plays out later so a little bit I, I think i know what they're referencing and trying to do but it's a little bit pointless because he is so obsessed with his face <laughs> that it seems odd that the film would try and hide it from the person watching yeah i guess so i mean this is meant to be a stealthy part so <laughs> could you imagine if he just had like his face on the side of the stealth boat as well <laughs> like a big banner oh he, he would just can't... though he can't stop We're himself. not that far away from that happening. <laughs> um, yeah, it is quite cheesy. It is quite cheesy. But I'm, I'm there for it. Anyway, the, the jets do fly over. And so they launch this drill. And all the people, the crew on the ship, start to panic because they spot it. They think it's a, a torpedo. And they all start shouting, torpedo, torpedo, torpedo. Uh, brace, brace, brace. And the drill eventually makes its way to uh, the side of the ship starts grinding in uh, and it's actually remote controlled very very advanced and it starts um they start controlling it as it moves through the ship and kind of ripping it up as it goes through causing it to flood there's water bursting everywhere there's a bottle of hp sauce shaking on the table what's going to happen to the hp sauce i don't know <laughs> um yeah the captain uh, asks for a report of all the damage that's happening from this because they're wondering why the the ship uh, or the the torpedo hasn't exploded yet and sends a message back to the Admiralty about being hit by Chinese torpedoes uh, and gives their final position, uh, or what they think is their final position, uh, before telling the whole crew to abandon ship because it started to sink so too late. But they're not done yet, this stealth ship, because as the jets fly by again, the stealth ship fires a missile at one of them uh, and actually blows it up to kind of mimic the British retaliating. And they intercept the British's, uh, that the ship's final message um, sent by the Devonshire. And that can that confirms to them that where the British thought they were, they weren't. Uh, they were actually 70 miles off of where they thought they were. So their encoding has worked. Well done, Gupta. His job is done. Yeah, it's uh, it, a lot of stuff happening already. Like we're seeing like three different scenes kind of playing out once here. I think it's kind of done quite nicely though i think the idea of it's all pretty cool but this is where the whiplash from goldeneye really hits hard because this is just so as you say cheesy it's so like on the face of it if you're only half paying attention i think you could be thinking like this is quite serious because the idea of it's pretty cool and it could it's pretty intense like this stealth ship kind of creating this tension between the british and the chinese and firing this missiles and sinking a ship like it seems quite tense but when you actually watch and pay attention like this is just pure cheese like this is so silly like the drill missile is just complete nonsense and the way they use it as well where they're remote controlling it inside the ship and you see like an x-ray shot of like let's go upstairs and it just like in it somehow just turns up like what <laughs> no like it just makes no sense in terms of physics or any they make no attempt 
to explain it. They make no attempt to justify it. They were just like, this looks pretty cool. Uh, and considering Robot Wars, I think, was out at the time, that's, that seems like it was very inspired by that. <laughs> <laughs> you just get Craig Charles suddenly come up. <laughs> it's like, yeah. watch out, there's Matilda. <laughs> they're sending the house robots <laughs> against the drill. The Sergeant drill missile. <laughs> Sergeant Bash, hell yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, so it's really silly. And to be honest, it was a bit off-putting for me because I think the concept could have been taken a lot more seriously and it would have matched more up with Goldeneye. And I think I was more in the mood for that. But this is so silly uh, that... Again, it doesn't sound super silly. I know it doesn't sound super silly, but trust me, there's a moment where the missile is hitting the ship and it's starting to sink and it just cuts to everyone where they're like we're abandoned ship the ship's going down and they're like a heavenly choir starts playing and everything slows down and there's like these Mm. angel god ray lighting that appears and it's super dramatic and i'm just like come on man like i don't mind it but it's so stupid compared to goldeneye where it's like that's fine but you really got to shift gears here and put that out of your head. Uh, Because again, this scene, as you say, it's pretty well put together. It does what it wants to do. It's establishing the villain. It's establishing the tone of the film. It's establishing the context. uh, Yeah, what the film's all about. So it does its job well. It's just so campy uh, that you got to be ready for it. They do a lot of that very fleeting slow-mo shot stuff, don't they, in this film? I never never quite understand why they, they chose to do that. And I think even just the sorry, even just inside of the stealth ship with Stamper, this big German guy, like oh God, even Stamper. that stuff is silly. I yeah, I was gonna say, I think a lot of the the British reaction stuff. I quite like all the lingo and all the panic, and I think that's played fairly seriously. But I just I don't like Stamper, and I can't remember. He says something. Does he go like knock knock or something? As is oh, as is controlling the drill. I hate that character. I'm just gonna say it now. I do not like Stamper in this film. That's but. fair enough. Uh, yeah, he is making his quips. Which again, like the Bond films, the point is that Bond makes the quips. Like you have humour, but he makes the quips. So having someone else do it, it makes it a bit like, oh, this is it's what you say before. And we'll probably say again, this is very 90s. Mm. <laughs> it's very late 90s where random German guys are like, yeah, knock, knock. Let's go upstairs while people are being murdered. Bond has the quips. Villains can have the quips. Henchmen... That's not in their contract. No, no quips for them. They just get on with their job. Thank you very much. That's, well, that's what I how say. it should be. If I was ever a, a Bond villain, that's what I would be having in the terms and conditions. And that makes sense. But it's also worth, uh, because we referenced this scene in the For Your Eyes Only bit, but that is way more serious and tense than this is. Like, this is way too oh, yeah. And more diluted down. There's no screaming. There's just heavenly angels and slow-mo and German guy making quips with people being flooded. Like, a lot of people die. Way more people die. But For Your Eyes Only was actually more kind of... I don't want to say gritty again, but, you know, you heard the screams. You felt it way more than what you feel it here. Hmm. Yeah. Um, We cut back to... I put shadowy, shadowy figure, but yeah, it's Carver, <laughs> right? It's Carver, um, the main villain, uh, who he's again, it's from behind. He's preparing uh, the front page of a newspaper on a giant screen in front of him. And he writes the headline, British sailors killed, which he then changes his mind and, and switches it to British sailors murdered. Instead. Murdered. No. Murdered. 
Uh, and I, I was going to say, again, I like this bit because they have the close-up, they have the reflection in his glasses. I will say they did go with some very Austin Powersy sounding music for this. I thought Dr. Evil was going to come in any second now. Uh, yeah. Even though this would have been, I think the first Austin Powers would, was 97, wasn't it? So Yeah, it must have been. It was around the same time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so he messages through to Stamper uh, and asks for, as he's making his his headline he needs the survivors for the subtext or the subtitle so he messages through to stamper and asks for the number of survivors uh, and also to use the right kind of ammunition before he leaves for a meeting and uh then <laughs> oh god is this really is this really when it comes up in my notes i i've put that we hear uh perhaps the best bond villain catchphrase of all <laughs> which is Delicious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the most threatening, the most cinematic of of uh, catchphrases. There's no, it's no, um, I don't know, what's a good villain catchphrase? No, no Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Different circumstances, I know. But no, what we get with, with Carver is delicious. That's what he likes to say. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying, how, yeah, they kind of have this set up as him being a shadowy figure. But then you really quickly realise that he's quite a dweeb. You know, he's quite pathetic, actually. So, um, I mean, his catchphrase is delicious, for goodness sake. Um, yeah, all the survivors of the Devonshire, they are now, like, under the stealth boat. The stealth boat's moved over them uh, in that middle section uh, in their life jackets. Stamper comes out and then just promptly mows them all down with a machine gun using that right type of ammunition that Carver said, uh, all while someone actually films the whole thing. Um, and after that, divers head down to the wreck of the ship and they still i say still yeah they take one of the nuclear missiles that was on board one of the cruise missiles stamper then informs the uh the gupta back in hamburg uh that's all all been good plan's been a success so gupta grabs the decoder and sticks in a little little box and that's him done and then we get the proper introduction to Carver. This is the one. Uh, he is at his meeting that he mentioned about, and he's leading a meeting with all of his business associates on this giant video conference screen. And they're all telling him about these latest updates to his business ventures, like the headlines for all the newspapers. is going to be things like uh, flooding in Pakistan and riots in Paris. And then he brings up another person and they talk about the new release of their software is ready to go and it's full of bugs. So users will have to upgrade. This is pure cheese, all this stuff. Oh. Uh, then we get another one uh, who's actually uh, Michael Wilson, one of the producers. Uh, he says about um, the president or, or uh, Carver says, you know, call the president and force him to sign this bill lowering cable rates. Otherwise we'll release a tape of him with a, a cheerleader in a, in a motel room. And then when he does release it anyway, guys like consider him slimed, sir. It's just so. <laughs> yeah, Michael Wilson, you might be a good producer. You're not a very good actor. I don't think anyone could pull off that line, though. To be fair, uh, it's all very cheesy. But I, I have, I gotta say, I do love this scene. I think mainly because you can just tell that Jonathan Price, who who plays Carver, he is just loving he's loving this opportunity i think he's sort of i get the impression that he's always wanted to play like a really hammy bond villain and he really is just going for it as he 
taps away on his little PDA thing he's got in his hand. Um, he's he's chewing the scenery, I suppose, is the best way of describing it in terms of actors. And uh, I'm all here for it. I can't think of a villain more cheesy than this one. No. Like, even after these films, like, of all the ones we've watched, this is the cheesiest by far. Because he's just so over-the-top evil. And this is what this scene establishes, right? When he's talking to people, he's like, what sort of havoc should we cause today? And he's all like, what about a plane crash? It's like, excellent! Ha 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 ha! Typing on his keyboard. It's so over-the-top. And I... There's part of me that kind of wants to watch this film again, like tomorrow, um, just to see it and just to give it another chance because this was such whiplash. This was such tonal whiplash compared to last week that it's like, it's just not fair to have them back to back. I I feel like that was such a mistake. Like, it's like we're missing a film to get us to this point because this guy is so exaggerated. And the president stuff, I'm just like, that's so stupid. But I guess that's what they're going for, which is oh, yeah. a choice. Um, but you're right, like, uh, Jonathan Price is, is very much enjoying it. I I couldn't really enjoy him that much in this film because of the tonal whiplash. But that is why I kind of think maybe I need to re-watch it, which is odd, a very odd feeling. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really enjoy it for those reasons. But if you take it for what it is, which is someone having fun being an over-the-top Bond villain, then it is a ton of fun. It really is, yeah. I, I think I was in the bubble of this film, thankfully. I could I could uh, take it for what it was, um, which, as you say, very different to GoldenEye. Um, but I did kind of warm up to it a lot more as I went on. Mm. But the first half of the film, I wasn't quite into it. But the second half... I kind of, I feel like I've said this before about other films. I've, I had made that adjustment. I think I said that about License to Kill. And to be honest, it's quite interesting with this film because I feel like this is quite similar to License to Kill in a lot of ways where License to Kill was so off the time pulling in 80s tropes that you have to kind of go along for that ride. And Tomorrow Never Dies is also the same, but only it's 90s tropes. Um, unlike that film, this still very much feels like a Bond film. There's no mistaking that. Um, so it doesn't have any issues like that. But I found it interesting to see like a film from like about 10 years later doing a ton of tropes and feeling very much of the era, but actually being of a different era, um, which gives the film quite a distinct feel, which is quite nice to actually go back to uh, as someone who grew up of that era. But yeah, like enjoying that stuff will very much determine whether you enjoy this film. Absolutely. I think there's an uh, an element of kind of nostalgia I suppose. Mm. And I think it's the same with the next film as well, which was 1999. It's the same, it's the same era. And particularly for our generation, that's when we grew up and there's a lot of kind of rose tintedness associated to that, or at least for me. So I think a lot of people would say that actually just, you know, pre a pre nine 11 world was people you always say like it was a lot happier. So <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's what I'm tapping into here. It but, could be, um, but yeah, I I kind of agree with that, where I feel like this film taps more into that 90s nostalgia than GoldenEye does, because GoldenEye yeah. kind of stands as its own thing, but Tomorrow Never Dies feels more cemented to other films in that era. So when you watch this film, it almost like just reminds you of the time period on itself, where when I watch GoldenEye, I'm not reminded of that at all. Mm, which I suppose is, is a positive and a negative, depending on how you see it, and depending on what mood you're in. Uh, some films some films you want to be almost timeless and some you want to go back to because of that feeling it 
it, it conjures. I yeah. do think the director is a part of it, though. This Roger Smotty's wood or whatever it is. Um, Snotty's wood. Snotty, snotty. <laughs> snotty nose. Snotty nose. Uh, because just looking at his list of films that he's done, one of them was Turner and Hooch. Oh, okay. Which, for people who don't know, is the Tom Hanks buddy cop film with a dog. Yep, and that's it. And another one is Stop or My Mum Will Shoot. Oh. Which is a buddy cop film with Sylvester Stallone and his mum. And I would recommend looking up the movie poster for it. uh, Because it's... Oh, my God. It's Mm. like an old woman holding a, a big revolver. (laughs) <laughs> and Stallone being like, hmm, I don't know about this one. How did I end up here? <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of what this guy is all about. I don't know how much of this kind of hamminess and comedy he brought to it and was him, but I would I would imagine it's quite a bit, considering how Martin Campbell is known for more grounded thrillers, and that's what we got with Goldeneye, and this guy is known for more buddy cop films <laughs> and we didn't get a buddy cop film but we definitely got a more like silly cheesy uh version of bond for sure uh on the big uh video conference screen uh stamper gets connected to um carver and tells carver that phase two is underway and there were 17 survivors for for his headline and then back on the main call with everyone else Carver uh, is very glee, you know, is his love in this. Uh, he's just, you know, his plan is working, according to the Stamper. So he tells all of these associates that uh, there is now a news just in. There's a sudden new perfect story for the launch of his new satellite news network, which is actually launching that night. Um, and that there is a, a small crisis brewing. He, he, he defines it as a small crisis brewing in the South China Sea, uh, upon which he just... Then he now enters like full megalomaniacal mode and and like frantically listing off. We're gonna we'll get this on magazines, on films, on twenty four hour news. I've got this everywhere. Uh, so much so that he sort of overwhelms himself at the end of this little spiel, and like you can see him sort of have to take a little breath and and uh, compose himself again uh, before ending with, "There's no news, like bad news." Oh, oh, that's oh. the one. That's the one. I was, I was just, I was grinning. I, I was really enjoying myself here. Yeah, it's so over the top, and I think we'll probably save the talk about the actual subject matter later, um, because this is very invoking like new cycles and stuff. But yeah, this scene is all about Carver having a good time. Oh yeah. So after that, we then go to Oxford. Uh, it doesn't actually come up with Oxford, but I was like. I've lived in Oxford before. I recognise those buildings. Go me for knowing where that is. And we go inside one of the the buildings because of like part of the university, and we hear someone in. I thought it was French, but I think it's actually Danish. I thought it was German. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't know our languages. Oh dear. Ooh. But I assumed it was French, but I think they do say it's Danish uh, yeah. afterwards. Uh, and we hear someone in Danish talking to Bond and. We then kind of zoom over and we see Bond in bed with a beautiful young woman and they're naked and they're kissing and the phone then starts ringing and she's like, don't answer it. And he's like, I got to answer it. And Bond answers the phone and while still in bed and we see on the other end of the phone, Money Penny is there and M and the Admiral are talking to each other. I believe this is still the command room that we saw from before from the opening sequence. So 
Money Penny is kind of trying to explain the situation to Bond about what happened with the ship uh, being sunk, and Bond is still in bed kissing the woman. And yeah, eventually, uh, Money Penny is saying, "Oh, we're we're you need to be here." I don't know how how exactly does this go? I think it's Money Penny because I, I can't remember what Money Penny actually says to Bond. I think it is just like there's some bad stuff going on near China, and Bond's like, "I'll yeah. be there in an hour." <laughs> And then she's like, make it half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so then Money Penny hangs up. And there's another joke here, which I really don't understand what it was, where, like, M comes up behind Money Penny while she was on the phone. And then it's like, don't ask, don't tell. I didn't, didn't get yeah. that joke. Yeah, I mean, that has different connotations now. Don't ask, don't tell. I don't know. I guess this was before then. So it was just it's just a little little quip but yeah i think Uh, it's supposed to be like a joke about m disapproving of money penny's flirting with bond but it doesn't come off that way it's i I take it as m's just heard money penny say you always were a cunning linguist which is a bit of a double entendre in itself and kind of disapprovingly looking at money penny hearing that okay yeah, so I, I never really got the M and Money Penny stuff in this film. I, I, this is kind of about it, to be honest. But I do wonder if it comes back later because, you know, it's. I don't want to go on on a tangent too much, but you know, M and Money Penny did have a relationship in the older films uh, when it was Bernard Lee and. Uh, oh, I can't remember her name. That's in, that's embarrassing. Uh, the original uh, Money Penny. <laughs> um, oh, uh, Lois Maxwell. Lois Maxwell, of course. There was a bit of relationship here, which we don't really get anymore. So I think there's meant to, they're trying to set up a new relationship, but it's so half-hearted that it just doesn't matter. Mm. So Bond then arrives in the Aston Martin again for just this scene. For just this scene, and we also need the Bond theme with it. Yeah, for it some was reason, really strange because yeah, we saw the Aston Martin in Goldeneye. And it's like oh, that's a nice throwback, but now we're seeing Bond just showing up in it. But it's just this scene. Just a quick shot of the Aston Martin arriving, Bond theme. It's like, yeah, we get it. Like, I, it's not a big deal because it's so quick, but it it it's kind of diluting the Aston Martin, and I don't like that. Let it be an iconic car. Don't just throw it in like this. Especially because we're now going to get all the bloody ugly BMWs. Oh, oh yeah, they're bad. They are yeah. bad. Uh, so Bond has arrived, and the Admiral is upset, and he is saying like, oh the. The satellite data wouldn't lie because we know that the satellite data was uh, tampered with to make sure the ship was off course. So they know that the ship was off course, but they're like, ah, oh, the satellite data doesn't lie. But M says that they picked up a strange signal nearby that potentially could have sent it off course. And M says they're investigating where this signal comes from. But there's like another dude here who I'm not too sure who that is. Is that the like a guy. minister? Yeah, I think he's another minister. Okay, yeah, because it's just someone who's just he's there, but I don't think they maybe they call him minister or something, but someone who's obviously important and can make a decision on this. So uh, Admiral and M are kind of bickering. The Admiral says, I don't think you have the balls for this job. Of which M replies, Yes, but at least I don't have to think with them. Oh. Hey. Of which the minister's like, Alright, calm down, calm down. What do we <laughs> what do we do? What, what are we gonna what's our plan? And the Admiral was saying, we it was an unprovoked attack on one of our ships. We'll send in the army. Let's send in the navy. Send in the boys. 
And M says, I need some time to investigate this. We want to look into the signal. Let's be cautious here. So the minister says, well, let's... Well, actually, I think the minister is like thinking about going with M. Uh, but he asks, how long would it take for the Navy to get here or to get to where it needs to go? And the Admiral's like 48 hours. So Bond at this point then walks in with the Tomorrow newspaper, which is the newspaper that Elliot Carver owns. It's called Tomorrow. And there's some information on there about how there was 17 people killed. But everyone's like, well, how do they know that? Where did they get this information about how they were killed? I think they also say the ammunition used was Chinese ammunition as well. Yeah. Uh, But no one knows where that came from. So at this point, the minister's a little bit mad about this and is saying like, okay, we'll send in the fleet. Let's do this. And then he says to M, you have 48 hours to investigate before it all kicks off. And it's a decent little scene. Again, I still like this idea of them being at MI6 and this being a very like working, like active place. I'm not super into this Admiral character. Oh, no, he's very annoying. And he's also very bad at his job. (laughs) How did he even get into that position? He almost just nuked a place in Russia a moment ago. And now he's... he's, Basically, they just set him up to be very trigger-happy. But it's very... um, I don't know. I I would have liked if he was a bit more uh, in-depth and just, I want to blow things up. Send the army in or send the navy in. Let's just get this done. Yeah, he's more there for M to just kind of, like, make look stupid. Yeah. Which I feel like in the past they've been a little bit more balanced with other people and other characters. But you're right, this is just such a, like, blah, 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 blah. Navy, let's let's do this, boys. And and it's just someone to, to M to put down. Which, you know, she does a good job with it, Judy Dench. You know, she's back. I don't think she's quite got the sophistication we got with Goldeneye. And I think some of that probably does come from this Admiral character because M pretty much spends the whole film dealing with him mm. and being the counter to this guy, which is kind of a shame, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't really have the, the typical M office scene, but I guess that's what's coming up next in the car, right? That's basically the equivalent. Yeah, they kind of dilute that a bit. But yeah, so the next scene, we cut to Bond and M in a black car, like going really fast through the streets of London. I don't know why. Um, but they're they're burning through the streets with a police escort, and Bond is saying how well somebody from the Tomorrow newspaper knew about something before the Vietnam government did, because they were printing the paper before the government officially knew. So M asks Bond, "How much do you know about Elliot Carver?" And we get a very classic Bond thing here. Where it's again M asking Bond, what do you know? Like, we took the Mickey out of this last time with Goldeneye, and now they're just doing it. Where it's like, what do you know about this? And he's like, hmm, ah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think. Yeah, oh, that's right. Uh, so we get that. So Bond just explains. He doesn't do the whole, he doesn't ham it up, to be fair. But he just explains, Elliot Carver, very powerful man. He can topple governments Um if he wants to he's a f- very powerful person very influential person with his paper and being in the pockets of high uh higher up so m is saying how one of the signals or the signal that we saw that was a bit suspicious actually came from one of carver's satellites so they've arranged for bond to go to hamburg because in the earlier scene we had carver explaining now oh we're going to launch a new satellite and we're going to have global coverage we're going to reach everyone apart from china uh, which comes up later 
Um, so they're doing a big launch. So they've arranged for Bond to go to Hamburg to be part of this satellite launch. And M says how, Bond, I believe you had a relationship with Carver's wife. Uh, I can't remember exactly what Bond says. I don't think he says too much about it. I think he gets quite quiet about it. And Yeah, he gets quite defensive. He's just, I think he just says, that was a long time ago, M. Yeah, like he clearly doesn't want to talk about it. But we got Money Penny in the front. Uh, we, we find out. So M tells Bond, use your relationship with Carver's wife. Do whatever you have to. Uh, and then I think it might be M or Money Penny. I think maybe both of them, where it's like, pump her for information. And I think Money Penny's like, it's up to you to depend how much pumping is needed. And then we get more Bond theme, and that's that. And I guess it's them trying to go back to the old classic M scene, but update it by having them in the car. But yeah. it seemed a bit awkward having them in the car where you've got like Money Penny looking backwards and Bond facing the wrong way. I I, I guess I like the idea of it being a more active MI6 where they're like always on the go and oh we got to do the report in the car and to be fair we have had Bond and M in cars before but I don't know this, this one didn't work too well for me. Yeah in the past it's it's just been Bond and M next to each other and that makes it easier to frame and talk to each other uh it is what they've done is as you say they've made it active on the go let's keep things moving always moving so they're being escorted in this police escort and yeah they are driving quite fast um they're in a rush and what that means is and it kind of adds to the way they filmed this with a sort of shaky cam effect it does seem like a very bumpy car ride. It's just yeah. awkward. But I've got to appreciate M still having a drink, even in this bumpy car ride. She needs her, was it bourbon, she said last film? Yeah, so, bourbon. Uh, even that's not going to stop her. Yeah, I, I mean, I just think there was such a great sophistication and way that it was done in GoldenEye. Again, I, I'll stop, I swear. But this one is more about, yeah, go, go, go. But maybe... I think you're right. It's the way it's shot. Like they could have got away with this, but having everyone in a car and be super cramped, but still trying to do the briefing and it's bumpy and M drinking still and money penny with a load of papers. It's just like probably just wasn't the way to go. If it was just M and Bond, this probably would have been a bit more interesting. Yeah, get rid of the other guy. Get rid of money penny. That would have been good. Yeah, you're right. There's there's somebody else in the car as well. <laughs> yeah, I don't, does he even say anything? I can't remember. Probably. I don't know. But there's like five people in this car, which is not a big car. Yeah. So we then cut to Bond at the airport. Is this supposed to be a UK airport or actually in Hamburg? I think he's landed in Hamburg now. Oh, yeah, because the woman at the desk speaks in a different language. <laughs> 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 German. Ah, <laughs> oh, German. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just love. I love the trail off there. That was great. <laughs> had to think about that. Well, I guess. Well, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so Bond is there at the airport, and he's he picks up the Tomorrow newspaper, which is talking about the tension between Britain and China, and Bond. I think speaks to somebody at the desk, like the car pickup, car rental woman. Uh, and he's then waiting and Q shows up in a red coat. Oh, he's looking very <laughs> dapper as a yeah, salesman. Like, <laughs> yeah, like looking like a salesman for the rent-a-car. So he's kind of a little bit undercover. So 
He's all like, ah, oh, hello, you'll need to sign this insurance damage waiver. And he's got a little clipboard and a pen. So he's like, will you need collision damage? And Pond's like, yes. And fire damage. He's like, of course. And property damage is like, almost certainly. So Bond signs the paper and they then disappear off into a hangar. And there's a giant crate that I think is opening as they cut to that scene. And we see the BMW in it which I don't believe is the same BMW as the last film, because I think that one actually looked a little bit better than this one. Yeah. But it's like a very 90s-looking BMW. Like, I can't really describe it super well because I don't know cars, but it's like the most 90s BMW car you've ever seen. It's just kind of... When you think of a Bond car, if you ask someone to describe a Bond car, they'll most likely say the Aston Mine, or at the very least, they'll say something you know slick, smooth, fast, sleek... And then this is just so uh, big, and it's it's it doesn't it doesn't suit Bond. Um, although I, now thinking of this, maybe there was a reason for that, because Ooh. we later learn that he is he goes undercover as a banker. So maybe they were like, listen, let's just give Bet Bond a business looking car, but we'll still fit it with all the gadgets. That's going to be my way to excuse it. I think. Well, that's the best you're going to get, I think. But, you know, as we discussed last time, there was a free film deal signed with BMW, so it had to be a BMW. But I do mm. feel like the one last film was better than this. Yeah, but yeah. It's what you say, though. Like, it does scream middle-aged man. <laughs> like, it looks like <laughs> what a middle-aged man would think is super cool. And it's like, oh, check me out in my sports car, when actually it just looks a bit lame. Yeah, exactly. It's trying too hard. Mm. Again. But yes, so Q then explains, oh, it has all the usual perks and missiles and all that good stuff. And Bond opens it up and like a woman's voice comes from the car. But that's just the... What's the name for it? Like assistant, I guess? I was trying to work this out as well. Sort of on, yeah, onboard assistant. Yeah, I, I think say it made, like AI, we, I don't it's think, not AI. <laughs> yeah, you just don't get this anymore. But I think it was very popular... At the t- oh, very futuristic and popular at the time with like Tom Toms coming out in a few years, where it's someone who reads off stuff to us. But now we just have like Google Maps that will just read it. But this is like kind of presented more as somebody who's, yeah, like an AI inside the car, but it's super basic because it's not AI that we have now. Mm. But yeah, Q was like, oh, I thought you would respond more to a, a woman's voice. So then Bond goes over to Q and Q's like, ah, here's a phone which is the main gadget for the film. And he says it has a fingerprint scanner, so you can scan and scan in people's fingerprints. It also has a taser. If you press the right button, there's a little taser that comes out the bottom. And he's like, this is what I'm very proud of. If you open up the phone and it becomes a remote control for the car. So it's like you slide the phone, because it's a very 90s phone, but you like slide it on its side and then there's like a touchpad underneath it. And yeah. The top of the phone then becomes a screen which shows the camera footage of the front of the car and Q's all like, you can use this as a remote control for your car and he starts trying to steer it but it like keeps breaking and stopping and he goes back and he doesn't do too well and he's all like, oh, well, it, it's a bit tricky but with practice, you know, you can get the hang of it. So Bond takes the phone and the Bond theme kicks in and the car drives out into the runway and he starts doing donuts and showing off and... Then it comes back and he breaks just before it hits them, of which Q's like, oh, grow up, 007. And 
I want to get this off my chest now. They use the Bond theme too much in this film. They do. They it do. Is, it is insane how many times they use the theme and it just becomes a little bit meaningless. And it's not that necessarily the usage is bad on its own. Like for this one, I guess it's Bond being cocky Bond and driving his car around and stuff. But if they didn't use the Bond theme that much, I wouldn't mind it here. But because they do use it so much, hearing it here, I'm just like, this is just actually kind of a bit lame, which is so sad to say about, you know, the Bond theme. Mm, They kind of went too far the other way. They didn't use it very much in the last one, and now they're just using it at every circumstance. You did not need it when he's driving in (laughs) into the the command room. It's just so pointless. Yeah, like we've heard it like four or five times already, and that pace does not stop yeah so i should say this is the first time that david arnold uh composes the music for this soundtrack so i think it's a little bit of a first time composer syndrome here is what i would guess where he just goes crazy with the bond theme we've seen it before i don't think we'll see it again luckily but we have seen this before sometimes people come in and just feel the need to get that in there because they're not quite sure what to do or they do write their own music, but they just want to make it feel Bond. So rather than making like original music that fits in with Bond, they just instead throw the Bond theme everywhere. And to be honest, this soundtrack, I think, is actually kind of bad oh. overall. Um, but I guess we'll get into specific scenes as we go. But yes, it's a it's David Arnold coming in, his first film, and he goes a bit crazy with the Bond theme. He does. Uh, yeah, I think you are right. I think it's just he, he came in as a, as a bit of an eager beaver and wanted to wanted to please but I definitely think he learned his lesson. Because am I right in thinking in Casino Royale, you don't hear the Bond theme until the very end? Yeah, I believe Which that's was correct. also done. So he clearly, he clearly learned, you know, use some restraint. And when you use it, it has more impact. So we just, uh, just baby steps with this for him. Um, I will say one thing that really, <laughs> such a nitpick, but in the scene of Q and Bond, and Q is showing off the phone. By the way, I love the phone. I think it maybe does a bit too much in this film. It's a bit of a... It reminds me of like in the in the Bond games where you just end up having a phone for all of the missions. Um, but I do really like the remote control car aspect, aspect to it. I remember when I was younger, like, the idea of the phone could do this. I'm like, this phone's got this big screen on it. It's amazing. Um, but whenever they do the insert shots of, of Q using the phone, they're not his hands. And I know why, because he's old. He's like 83 or whatever. He's probably shaking all over the place. But could they not have at least got someone relatively old to do it? Because you, you actually look, he's got quite nice skin, Q. He must moisturise, keep his nails all nice and, and clean and neat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is another one where I'll, I'll repeat what we said last time, Q. I mean, it's only two years between, but it feels like it's been like 10 with the ageing. Mm. like he does not look great here and i love the idea of q dressing up as a rent a car guy and in the red coat and meeting up it's such a nice fun idea but he just can't quite do it anymore like it's it's far from bad it's still q there's still jokes here it's still quite charming and enjoyable but he just can't do it anymore it's just a bit much like i think he was a bit more lively and spirited in the last one i think the last one was really good this one he does feel like he's he just needs to sit down like just let the man sit down (laughs) put up a chair no i i remember reading that i think they were 
thinking or, or they were planning to um, make it so that Q was retired in this film, and you would see it. You would see him very briefly, uh, but not in not in this sort of role, which I guess they eventually do do. But they just decided to wait a little bit longer. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. But anyway, uh, after that, after we get the little Q Q scene, uh, we are back in Hamburg, back at the Carver Network office place. Uh, Bond is there for the big party for the the news network launch in his lovely BMW 750i. I wrote down the model for some reason. Um, uh, he drops it off with a, a valet and heads into the party. And this is not your typical Bond party. I got to say, I do like that immediately. Maybe it's because it's German and you get that sort of German techno vibe to it all. But the party is basically this giant warehouse looking place. Um, this giant room and there's neon lights everywhere and there's lasers in the background and there's just people on balconies on like metal stairways and everything. It's not what we've really seen in a Bond film before in terms of, uh, uh, if you were to say, oh, this is a, a scene in, this would be like a casino scene or something like that. But no, we're getting this kind of high tech nineties venue and I do like it. I do like it's just different. I like different stuff. Well, this ties into how are you, you know, how are, how much are you into the nineties vibe? Because mm. if you're super into it, this is excellent because it's so nineties. There's like lasers point. Like there's one scene where Bond is talking to someone, and it was super distracting because the view of them was normal, but the view of Bond just had like a red, blue, and green laser just shining in the background with Bond <laughs> in his tux, like his bow tie, being like, oh, no, "I'm yeah. a banker." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's so, yeah, oh God, yeah, very 90s. That's the thing. Bond is, is all suited and booted in his usual outfit. And then there is just, there's like a rave going on behind him, it looks like. Very, very strange. Uh, anyway, uh, we see Carver uh, in this big group of people. He's sort of reeling off these little small talk stories about businesses and uh, making them all laugh. They were finding it very funny. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, Bond comes in and he's, he's introduced to Carver as... A banker, as Tom says, he's a banker at the moment. Um, although he starts to talk about things, about stocks and how Carver's stocks are doing. Although Carver very quickly gets distracted by uh, this other lady that walks up behind Bond. Uh, and we that eventually ends up being Wei Lin. Uh, well, she who, says her name instantly because yeah, she introduces herself to Carver. Yeah, she's from the New China News Agency and she... Basically, very. She quickly confesses that she wasn't on the guest list. She snuck in because she uh, she wanted to meet Carver, which impresses him very much. So he's, you know, do you want a job? You would be great in our my new Beijing bureau, which she replies saying that you don't have one, um, which is again more of a kind of hint as to the future plans of of Carver. And whilst those two are talking, Bond spots uh, another lady up on the balcony watching all of this unfold and he goes up to see her and as he goes up to see her it's a very glamorous looking lady she's got this lovely black dress on and you kind of put two and two together this is going to be paris but the you know you've had this rave looking place this warehouse of lights you've had not crazy music going on while all this happens but it's still kind of modern music playing and when it cuts to these two the music changes i don't know if you notice this but the music changes to like a dinner party loungy music i don't know why 
I very, can't very remember what the music is in this scene, but one of my notes for this scene is, what the hell is this music? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, so I couldn't tell you what it's like, but this... Oh, this is just... I remember it being bad. I'm like, why is this playing here? Yeah. So I couldn't yeah. tell you what it is, but it's very strange. I don't... It's almost like they're trying to have their cake and eat it here, where they want Bond being classy and charming, like the casino scene and everything being sophisticated, but they also want a German club. And I don't think... Maybe David Arnold's like, what do you want me to do here? <laughs> what, what, what do you want from me? You can't... Why did you shoot this like this way? I can't... So maybe he was just a bit trapped, but you're right. The music's very strange. That's exactly what I wrote down, is that they, they clearly just needed a bit of classiness between these two characters. So I'll just forget what's on in the background. Just change it. We're going to have it like it's at a casino again. Uh, but yeah, they're talking. Uh, well, they're talking. I say that. She, he introduces himself uh, and she immediately just slaps him uh, straight away. Because <laughs> as we now know, there's sort of a history between them, judging by what we heard in the car with them. And she's angry that Bond, in their relationship, however many years back, just left her. Uh, it's his line of work. He he just left. Um, and we learn how she's kind of moved on from Bond and how he hurt her. But she's, she's now found Carver and she's changed as a woman. Bond tries to order a drink for her. Well, she orders him a, a vodka martini because she remembers. And he tries to order her a... I think it's a shot of tequila. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, yeah, not a very classy sounding drink. And she corrects him and says, no, actually, I'll have some of uh, the Carver champagne instead. So she's moved on from Bond, clearly. Uh, but yeah, she knows that Bond is an agent and that he's here under some kind of ulterior motive, just posing as a banker and specifically asks whether he still sleeps with a gun under his pillow. Um, and as she says that, we cut back to uh, Gupta, who's in some sort of CCTV office and it's clear that he's kind of watching all of this unfold. He's keeping an eye on her and Bond and what they're up to together. That always felt so off to me that Gunto is the one doing that. Like, mm. I, I guess I get it in the sense of, oh, you know this character and he works for Carver, so it makes sense he would be here. But it's like, you got this like cyber terrorist manning the cameras. <laughs> I mean, if that's what he wants him to do, fair enough. You feel like that's a bit underneath him. Yeah, I think he needs a job evaluation because he surely has got bigger things to deal with when he's trying to hack into the American GPS system. You're right. They do. They kind of switch between. I mean, they got Gupta and you've got Stamper, and you've actually got another henchman later on. There's a lot of henchmen in this film, um, but you would have thought there would be a better place for Gupta. Yeah, he's there snooping. Uh, Bond, back with Bond and Paris. He's, they're kind of walking now and Bond tries to, well, he starts the process of pumping, I suppose. Oh. Pumping Paris <laughs> for information. Hey, M's words, not mine. As requested um, by Judy Dench, the pumping has begun. The pumping queen. Um, <laughs> why did I say that? Uh, so he starts to probe about Carver and his business and, whether someone in his organization is doing something because Carver is in danger, um, linking stuff back to the crisis, obviously. But Paris is not budging. She's uh, she's having none of it. She's kind of she, she knows Bond's tricks by this point, I guess, because she's seen him before. She knows what he does, uh, so she just basically shuts him down straight away. And as she does so, Carver with Waylin um, is there and calls him over to introduce Waylin to them. Um, 
and actually asks, oh, I didn't know how you and Mr. Bond knew each other, to which Bond says that they're, uh, they're old friends, but she corrects him, says they're just casual acquaintances. Uh, and we then get a bit that's kind of like, this reminded me of A View to a Kill, because Bond, talking to Carver, asks about his satellites and all the kind of the tech involved and the, the potential they have and how uh, using very specific wording here, such as, you know, uh, manipulating the course of governments or ships <laughs> uh, and, and how uh, he'll be something about being lost at sea, adrift. And it's very much like when Roger Moore is in A View to a Kill and talking to Zorin and ends up doing the whole fly fishing question. I guess Bond at this point is, he knows that he's not going to really get very far with Paris potentially. So he's just kind of trying to get under Carver's skin. But uh, it really just does go to show how Pierce Brosnan can can do all of those previous Bond tropes. You know, he, he has all this stuff of a little twinkle in his eye as he knows he's letting himself in on it basically but i don't know this is this was i I quite like it i like the idea of bond doing this but yeah i don't i actually kind of thought this was a little weak because i just don't think pierce is enjoying it as much as a a sean connery or roger moore would there's just a real giddiness and (laughs) cheekiness when roger does it and you know pierce did it a little bit in the last film but this one felt I don't know. I think the tone of this scene is so all over the place. I didn't really know what to think. So especially with the music and the setting, it's a bit too much of a mess for me. Um, so I thought this actually, I like that Piers is doing this and I do think he can pull it off. But in this one, I wanted a bit more of a smug, wide-eyed grin. You wanted the grin. You wanted yeah. the Roger Moore grin. The bigger, mm. like, um, the Grinch smile afterwards. That's what I <laughs> uh, Anyway, um, Carver just laughs off his questions, and uh, yeah, that's when he says, "Oh, you're very, you're very creative for a banker." Um, but he goes off because he needs to go start the broadcast for this big party and the launch of his network. Um, so he walks off with Paris, but he does also, as they're walking away, basically tell Paris that he knows she's lying. He's on to her. Something's going on, and tells Stamper to go and deal with deal with an annoying banker. He's got problems with. So um, as they're going to do that, Bond and Wei Lin head to this other section where everyone's now gathering to to watch the the broadcast. And that's when some some nice friendly goons come over and tell Bond that he's got a, an urgent phone call that he's got to attend. And Bond obviously knows what's going on. He's mm, OK and just follows them uh, into this sort of backroom area. Carver starts his presentation, uh, this kind of grand, you know, standing up in front of everyone and this little, uh, what are they called? Doesn't matter. Podium. Um, Podium, yeah. Uh, All these screens behind him, all this stuff going on, all the the news and headlines showing and news reports. And he's there saying that he wants this to be a celebration, but actually it's a, there's a terrible conflict in the South China Sea. Uh, Bad timing. But whilst it, we we do cut back to Bond, but in the background of all the, the rest of the shots, you do keep hearing Carver. And if you actually pay attention to what he's saying, is is basically, he's sounding crazy, but he's trying to keep it sane. So he, he, he says about how he wants to save the world and, and uh, be a leader in the world, but for the right reasons. He wants to save the world from tyranny and, and misinformation and ignorance. 
that's 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 him doing his big speech anyway well he says whoa why he says whoa domination but it's yeah. like not that type of domination yeah, yeah. Whoa, whoa 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 don't take me the wrong good though. kind yeah 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 hey don't, don't, don't misquote me here um Bond is led by the goons into, I think it's like a recording studio, soundproof studio, because there's instruments and stuff in the background. And he starts getting beaten up by, (laughs) immediately beaten up by the group of thugs in this room. Uh, They're just, it's just, this little fight scene is just so bad. This might be one of the worst parts of the film, because it's just these old men kicking Bond. Well, at least one of them is really old. (laughs) And he's just on the floor being kicked, and there's a guy with a baseball bat, and he whacks him a few times, and... Yeah, the the main thing that stands out is just the sound. The sound effect in this fight scene is perhaps the worst sound effects I've heard in a Bond film so far. Oh, there's uh, some bad sound effects in this film, though. Yeah. There's one in particular oh, yeah. that I'm thinking of that is just like, oh my God, did they just put in the wrong sound? Oh, I wonder if it's the same thing I wrote down later. I guess we'll see. We'll get there. Um, we'll get there. But yeah, there's just, it's, it's, the, it's the punches and the hit sounds are pure cartoon it is honestly like you are watching a looney tunes thing it it doesn't sound real at all Uh, and and, i mean that's as well as the fact that there's just just not very well choreographed it's kind of slow and clunky um but he does eventually take them out they they go to put him on a chair instead and that's the opportunity opportunity for him to break free from it all uh, and smashes one of them through into the sort of control panel of this room where there was another guy watching uh, watching the TV screens there. This last guy that he takes out, he quickly tries to message through to Stamper, but he gets cut off by Bond, smashing an ashtray or something, something glass anyway. Yeah, over his I, head. I'd put it as an ashtray. Yeah. Uh, and Bond, kind of brushing himself down, he looks over, sees Carver on the screen giving his big crazy speech and decides to shut him up. So he goes over to the circuit board cabinet next to it and just starts slowly switching them all off saying it's time for a station break, which, honestly, I don't think is the best quip he could have used there. I feel like there was something better. Yeah, like lights out or something. Like There's there's a ton of stuff you could do yeah. with someone on a stage. Yeah, exactly. It's time for a station break. That doesn't sound very cool. but <laughs> And it just doesn't make sense anymore. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. Uh, and with that, Carver's broadcast very uh, wackily, shuts down and you know morphs and stretches as it as it goes off air it's it it wouldn't really do that but you know it's got to be cinematic so it glitches and shuts down and he starts going mental and mad at everyone around him what's going on he fires this poor pr lady uh next to him the one that we're introducing every like introduces him earlier and bond earlier and shut up you're fired go away (laughs) (laughs) and then he tells stamper to go and investigate what's happened so you see stamper go into that that studio room and see all the mess uh from the fight scene so i will echo what you said that fight scene's pretty terrible mm. but i feel like there was a real choice here to lean into it being more com- comedic and silly and i think that just doesn't quite work even for this film going for a more cheesy tone i think trying to keep it more grounded and not having these like you say, they're like these old goons and one has a baseball bat. It's like, ah, we're going to get you, guy. And then they like shoot it in a comedic way where the security guy who's on the other side of the recording booth is looking at Carver's speech and in the background, Bond is fighting these guys and it mm. just looks terrible. 
like it's meant to be pure comedy you're meant to kind of laugh at the idea of like oh he doesn't even know what's happening behind him but i think it might have worked better if they tried not to do that so it's yeah. like again this film is is going more in that direction but i think even considering that it's just kind of poorly put together and just a bit awkward and not very funny and they just don't quite get that balance right at all and it, it feels a bit amateur i would agree with that yeah but i do really like the idea of bond shutting off the 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 broadcast that's that's classic bond and you get a little bit more character from carter or uh, yeah carver i, I mean uh, where he's all mad and angry so you see the the other side of him the nasty side of him where he's he's almost like a kid where normally he's very giddy and so happy to be so super evil but when things go wrong he's like very snappy and especially with how that contradicts how he presents himself in the speech where he's like hey guy i'm just a good guy trying to conquer the world but that's fine <laughs> right and then just to see him fire that person on stage that's uh it's bond winding up the villain and that's always fun Oh, he he properly throws a tantrum, doesn't he? Throws all the toys out the pram. Yes, so we then cut to Bond at the Atlantic Hotel, which I'm assuming is a famous hotel in Hamburg, but I, I don't know, um, because mm. they zoo, they like sh- stay on the, the logo of the hotel, so you know it's the Atlantic. Mm. And we see Bond sitting alone by himself with a big old bottle of Smirnoff vodka. Very important to specify it's Smirnoff, because... They zoom in right on the bottle. And <laughs> it's clearly product placement for money. But I like to think it's a homage to, I think it was Dr. No, where he was drinking Smyrna Fonka. Yeah, I got big Dr. No vibes from that, where he's with his silence gun just waiting. Yeah. Yes, I got, yeah, I got those vibes as well. But it does almost seem like this scene, because he looks depressed doing shots doing Fonka, it's like the scenes that you assume happen in the Sean Connery films, but because they're so depressing, they never show it. Like there's always an implication <laughs> that Bond does this on every mission. They just never show it doing shots alone, like polishing his gun at his hotel because of all the drinks he buy. But now we're actually seeing it with Piers Brosnan being all sad on a chair. Oh I, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, surely when Bond is on a mission, he's always at risk of being caught out. <laughs> so he can't really ever relax, so he's got to have a drink. This happens every time. Yeah, this is this always happened. We're just now seeing it, 18 oh. films in. A peek behind the curtain. Finally. So we, we see him just, yeah, he's he puts his gun on the si- side and he like sighs as well, I think. It's very mopey. Um, so we cut to Carver watching the news in his office back at the building and everyone's this news reporter is saying how like what an embarrassing event for elio carver ha 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 and they're just like mocking how his satellite launch got interrupted by this power cut so paris his wife is saying how oh these things happen and he's like not to me and he's very angry and then he goes into this story about how when i was working in hong kong like i i started in the industry when i was 16 working in hong kong and the editor there told me the key to a good story is the why. And then he's like, so Bond, I want to know why. It was really awkward dialogue. <laughs> like they really wanted him to go on another little rant and give more of his backstory. But he says a good story is about the why. So he can ask her about why she knows Bond. It was something I want to say is that 
something that kind of hurts this whole section of the film is that their relationship, they just don't really make any effort to sell you on it. Yeah, why would she all. be with him? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like every scene with those two in is, is super brief and it's all about them talking about Bond. And I think that's kind of a shame. I guess that makes sense for this evil villain. But even with like Christopher Walken, who was meant to be psychotic and Mayday, even though they didn't super focus on it, you at least got to see their relationship a little bit, which sold it a little bit more with what happens later in the film. And it's like, this film would have really benefited from just a little bit of that. Not a ton of that. They don't have to be wrestling in a big mansion, but just (laughs) a little something so this makes sense. Yeah, especially because, well, if you compare this to real life, and as I think you said earlier, we'll probably mention more about how the themes of this is very much linking into mass media and the likes of Rupert Murdoch, that sort of character. Rupert Murdoch does have very young wives. I think he's had about seven of them. So <laughs> I suppose that bit is quite believable, that there would be just someone, you know, without judging too much, someone in it for the money, right? Otherwise, it is just an old man. Sure. Um, but then I think you don't really get enough, you don't really get that vibe from Paris that she is that shallow. So it just doesn't match up. Yeah, I think the seeds are there, especially when she's talking to Bond, but they just don't really bring it together. But yeah, you're right. They don't necessarily mean to be actually in love, but something to explain what this relationship is would Mm. have helped. But instead, it's just Carver doing his ranting, which is fine, but we get quite a lot of that elsewhere and better versions. So, yes, yeah, so she, she says, she doubles down. She says, I barely know him, don't know anything about him. Uh, and they kiss. And then we cut back to Bond in the hotel room. So I, I take this that he's sitting in the chair waiting for her because he's got the doors open and his chair is like pointed at the door. Yeah, I think he was just waiting. He was expecting someone to come, be it her or just a goon. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense as well. So, yeah, so yes, so Paris enters the room. We get a little bit of like a half smile from Bond. And he was like, oh, I was curious who Carver would send. I didn't didn't think he would send you. And Bond does a shot of vodka. Another one. Get it down, your son. man. Uh, (laughs) But Bond tells her to to go home. Get out of here. Don't get involved in this. She's saying it's too late for that. I'm already involved. So closes the door and enters the room and... She, they then start talking about their past relationship a little bit and how, oh, I always used to look in the newspaper for your obituary. And then yeah, she approaches Bond and they're kind of she's kind of pondering why him and her didn't work. And she's wondering, oh, did I get too close? Is that why you never let me in? Did I just get too close to you? And Bond says yes. And then they kiss. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And this is where I put in my notes that the music was bad. And I think what I don't like about the music in this film is how on the nose it is for every single type of scene. Like, it's so... If you said, oh, here's a scene of Bond girl and Bond kind of hooking up and talking about their relationship, like, this is the most kind of easy, stereotypical music you could use. And it's kind of like that throughout the whole film. The music feels very on the nose, very standard, and especially coming from Goldeneye, where it had such a distinct style that feels very Goldeneye. Even if the music didn't work, it at least felt unique and distinct. This one just seems very generic and functional with a ton of the Bond theme thrown in there to make it a Bond theme. And 
it was actually kind of really disappointing because I remember liking David Arnold's work a lot more than I uh, than I remember from from this film. Uh, that's interesting because I actually put the exact opposite. <laughs> I I think this scene, which had the potential to be a very good scene when you're when you're dealing with a you know an ex flame of bonds, um, and she's sort of scratching at the surface of of why she left or why he left her. You know, did I get too close? I don't think Terry Hatcher, who who plays Paris, is a particularly good actress in this role. Um, I don't think she's very good as Paris. I think someone else could have maybe brought a bit more to this character and made it a bit more emotional. And I think with that said, it's not particularly emotional until you get the music, which I'm liking it for the wrong reasons, basically. I'm liking it because I think the music saves this scene. Uh, Otherwise, it would have been just really quite bad. But I'm basically, you know, it's basically just manipulation, right? (laughs) Like... The music's there. The music sounds all swelly and romantic, so I'm buying it a bit more. Oh, I'm, I'm meant to be sad. Yeah, oh. like I'm. I'm very conscious that it is just it's very one note in that regard. But I think what I'm basically saying is, if this sort of music wasn't there, this scene would be even worse. So I'll take it. <laughs> okay, uh, the b- better of her two evils then. Yes, but, but yes. no, yeah, you're right. Like I didn't really think about her acting too much, but overall, I didn't buy this and it probably is because of her acting to be honest i didn't really buy because the whole idea here is that we're really going into a little bit of history with bond this is someone he was very close to but and as she kind of says did i get too close and he's like yes which is why the relationship ended but you just don't buy it like i don't really buy their chemistry that these were two kind of people who actually would get very close that this actually this is the woman that bond actually got very close to like this is her i yeah. like, I don't i don't buy that and she seems a little bit more of just like a sad sap really going between bond <laughs> and then carver like two different type of psychopaths <laughs> so she she doesn't she seems more like a victim in all this but not in a way where it's sympathetic or anything so really strong idea i think this probably came from a really strong idea and i really like that they did this idea but especially for a film that's more cheesy and silly it was perhaps a bit misguided and they even needed to go more all in on this or just say, actually, it's not the film we're making. Maybe we shouldn't do this so much and keep it more basic. Save this for a few films later when they actually do it properly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the tone of this doesn't match the tone of the rest of it. One thing that really annoyed me in this scene is that I got annoyed at Bond because when she comes in, he quite clearly says to her, I didn't ask you to get involved in this. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Yes, you did. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you did. Yeah. So what what ends up happening to her, that's all on you, Bond. Sorry, you can't try and you can't try and say otherwise. Well, you'd think that's why he's drinking, surely, right? Like because oh. he is all sad and soppy, which I don't really like, but I guess the justification for it is that it's about her. He can't be upset, like, oh, no, Carver's going to kill me. Uh, like, <laughs> that happens all the time. It has to be her why he's upset. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. It's all a bit strange, but good idea, but bad execution. So we then cut to Henry, Henry uh, Gupta, 
and he's talking to Carver, where Carver is like, I need more information on this James Bond. So he's all like, I was going through the security tapes and there's some audio that you can hear so they can hear the conversation between Bond and Paris. And there's one line, which is Paris saying, do you still sleep with a gun underneath your pillow? And it gets replayed like five times. <laughs> and Carver's getting all mad. Like, Arr! she did lie to me. <laughs> Wait, I, I missed it. Play that again. What does that mean, Gupta? Well, play it again. I, can't, I don't understand. Under the pillow, you say? Hmm. A gun. But oh. yeah, they, they really hammer this home. <laughs> like, let's play it five times. Even though you heard it the first time. But. Oh, yeah. And then Carver says, I can't remember to who, I think Stamper or Goon or something, where it's just like, let, I think I got this line wrong, but it's something like, let's get an appointment for my wife with the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, that's kind of lame, dude. I don't want to, I don't want to slag you off, but that was pretty lame line. Yeah. When you know, well, I don't know. At the time, it sounds lame, but then you realise what it means. But I suppose you, he could have done it maybe in a more uh, nefarious way, given the type of villain he is. Yeah, like, I, yeah, I think so. If you if he's going to be cheesy, make him cheesy. But this is just like, it, it's meant to be a threat. But it's like, get an appointment with the doctor. Oh, yeah. Now it's actually clicking what this meant. <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought OK, that, that now makes sense. It's just clicked. I thought... The line was, well, we're going to break her legs or something, so let's get her an ambulance. <laughs> but <laughs> it's referring to a specific character, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that makes way more sense now. That only just clicked right now. I, I still think it could have been a better line. but I yeah. think so too. It works yeah. in hindsight. Yeah, so we then cut to the morning of the ho- outside the hotel and we see Paris getting dressed because... Yeah, in the last scene, Bond and her were kissing and she got undressed. So obviously they were going to go to bed. So we're now in the morning where she's getting dressed again and Bond is in bed and he starts saying, I can get you out of the country in four hours. But Paris is saying, no, I have to go back to him. There's no one that can protect me from him. And she gives a little bit of information saying there's a lab nearby that you can go and check it out. And she's... uh, Bond is saying, you don't have to do this, don't have to give me the info, but I can't really remember what she says. She just kind of disappears. So she's helping out Bond, giving him some info, while also going back to Carver. Again, this is something else I don't buy, about how she's all like, you can't protect me from him. I bought it when it was like Scaramanga, as some of the other villains. I don't buy it with Carver. <laughs> I just don't buy it. He just seems such a silly, over-the-top villain. I don't buy that she would be so petrified of him that she would go back to him because of how scared she is. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, because surely, surely she must have known at that point she was, she was a goner. I would think <laughs> so. But um, I think you're right. She doesn't sell that, that sense of conviction of, of kind of uh, knowing her fate very well. I think, yeah, this just ties into what we've already said about this character. This whole thing is kind of very mishandled and I think goes against a lot of the tone and the vibe of the rest of the film. So it's like a good idea here. And we've seen some of this stuff in previous Bond films. I, I mentioned Scaramanga because we had something very similar. And even though I didn't really like that storyline at the time, it was a little bit more effective and made more sense with the rest of the film. This one is trying to take this quite seriously and being quite clumsy at it and 
you're meant to buy Carver of both this like actual intimidating force and also this silly Doctor Evil type villain. And it doesn't work, and her acting doesn't help. So we're almost done with this storyline. But yeah, one more jab at, at the storyline, saying it's not great. I don't quite buy it. Yeah, sorry, Paris. Sorry, Paris. But there's a one more quick scene to top this off. I can't remember exactly what happens. I think it's just Carver in like his media room, just looking all mad. And I think that's it. <laughs> we do get a lot of those sort of shots in this film. Of just yeah. a brooding Carver looking at something, thinking, deep in thought. With Carver brooding and looking all mad, we then cut to a load of newspaper reels being printed at a factory. So she says lab, but it's a little bit confusing this, but it's actually like a newspaper factory that then has like a lab attached to it. But it's, I think it's also attached to like a media building. It's, it's, this confused me a little bit, uh, this whole setup. But we see a lot of security guards going through this newspaper factory as it all it's all being printed. It's all very quick, lots of paper being printed and guards guarding it. And we see Bond running along the roof that uh, Paris told him about. So he climbs down. There's a little hatch to get into the building and he gets like a key from his phone and then unlocks it, which I don't remember Q mentioning that. No, I don't think he did. Like, there was a film where it was like, here's a key that can unlock any door. But it definitely wasn't this one or the last one. That's or License to saying, Kill. Yeah, that's when I was saying that this phone just feels like it does a bit too much for one gadget. I, uh, maybe that's just the way things are heading, you know, with, with the... It's a phone. These new new mobile phones, they're tiny. They can do everything, so that's what they're playing into. But it really does feel a bit like a the sonic screwdriver at times just whip it, it out bit, yeah but it's like it it's not even like a key attachment i think he just opens it and there's just a key it's like, oh handy nice. yeah yeah how much stuff can they fit in this tiny phone it's yeah it's which they didn't even need just have him break in it's fine <laughs> yeah yeah a bit clumsy so he there he drops down into the hatch goes kind of into the building and gets his gun out and yeah he's in he's in the lab which is kind of above the newspaper factory or uh warehouse whatever you want to call it so he hears some voices in an office nearby, so he goes and hide. And we see Henry comes out of the office, and he he tells a load of goons about moving the satellite and being careful. It doesn't really matter, but they then leave, and Bond goes to approach the office, and he, he gets his phone out again. But this time, it's an electronic lock, so he saps it with the taser that Q told him about. So he gives up the old sap, it fries it, and he, he enters into the office. And we get a really odd scene where he's like looking in all the lockers and files and just can't find anything. And then we just see him like sat there being like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You know, he, he doesn't go straight to the answer. He, he sits there and like, oh, crap. What, where is it? Let's have a think about this. Hang on a moment. <laughs> yeah, it's very non-Bond, which isn't yeah. bad at all. But it's like Bond usually goes in and is like, oh, yes, here it is. But no, this time he looks and he's just like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, wow, I usually find about. it straight away. I'd, what do I, I do? I expecting that. Yeah. This um, is strange. Dear. You win this round, Carver. <laughs> the end, yeah. yeah. But he does sit down and while he's moping, he sees a poster. So he checks it and behind the poster is a safe. And he then, how does he open the safe? Let me figure. Ah, oh, it's the fingerprint scanner. So he gets his phone out for the third time. And this time he uses the fingerprint scanner. So I always thought this was actually quite cool where he, he scans the fingerprints. So the phone can scan fingerprints but there's like a fingerprint detector scanner on the safe. So you put your finger on and then it unlocks. So Bond scans that 
to get what the fingerprint is and then puts the phone up against that scanner and it pops open the safe. That one I actually think is really cool. Yeah. Most of the stuff the phone does, I really like. It's just when things come out of it that you didn't mention. And I, I have said before, I don't mind about gadgets not being explained, but the phone was very specifically pointed out. So I feel like when there's a key that just juts out, don't do that. But yeah, the, the fingerprint thing, great. Yeah, I agree. The actual stuff that we know about, good, but don't add another three or four things. No need. Yeah. So he opens the safe and there's porn, uh, there's money, and there's like drugs in there, which is never explained. I guess the idea is that this Henry uh, Gupta is not a good guy, quite a sleazy fella. Mm. So he has a lot of stuff in his safe, I suppose. But Bond also finds the encoder in the red box. And something I do really like about the encoder, because it is kind of the thingy we bob, the, the, the MacGuffin of the film. But everyone's just like, yeah, the red box. Like later in the film, Carver's like, give me my red box. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my red box? Yeah, I, I had a very specific red box and I need it back. <laughs> uh, I like that they do just treat it like that. So yes, Bond takes the, the encoder, the red box, puts it in his jacket and walks out. And as he goes to leave, he hears something and Waylin enters the room. And as she does, the alarm goes off and things start kicking off. So Bond quickly shuts the door. She came through and locks it and runs away. But the guards are able to open it because it's just locked by electronic lock. So they just type in the code and yeah, it all starts kicking off. They start shooting a Bond. Waylin just escapes and he gets back onto the roof. And then from the roof, he goes down a different set of stairs where he enters like this large lobby area and all the guards are shooting at bond but he says way lin like across the way and she like attaches a wire to the wall and then starts slowly walking down the wall at like a 90 degree angle so bond sees her and gives a bit of a look saying that's strange but all the guards are shooting at him so he's just trying to run he's trying to get out of there so bond then goes from the lobby into the newspaper factory itself and Bond goes on top of this like big yellow platform and then a guard catches up with him and they start having a fight. So they're punching each other, they're wrestling each other, but the yellow platform kind of moves over the top of the paper line that's all being printed below them. And then Bond is like kind of hung down a little bit by this guy, like pushed his head and neck over and is kind of trying to push Bond down. So Bond then like punched the guy, but he's just, he kind of acts like a henchman for some reason where he's like not bothered by it. Yeah. Like, yeah, this guy is surprisingly tough. Yeah, he gets that very like Jaws Tiki reaction where Bond punches him and he's just like, Ha-ha-ha. so Bond punches again and he's still fine. And then it takes the third punch and then that's what kind of knocks him back. And then, yeah. sorry, go on. I just got, he needs a promotion. <laughs> I think Carver needs to, that's some good potential, uh, you know, closer guards there, not just someone in his factory. I think, yeah, for a factory guard, he's pretty tough. But then we have, I think, the most sympathetic character in the whole film, where a man in, like, a red suit jacket then has to go and attack Bond. And he seems pretty old. He seems like he might be a dad or something. I I think he's a little out of his depth. (laughs) Oh, my God. I did not think twice about this character but now you're actually making me sad he is sad because he just you know he's got the boarding thing like i don't know why he's got the red jacket in but he's just 
he doesn't look like a, he's not a security guard or anything. He just looks like someone who works there. He was like, I'll get him. <laughs> like, Wait, that was Q if it was I'll, in a red jacket. <laughs> Q the whole time. Oh, no. Oh, that's how they could have written him off. That's how they could have done it. Oh, yeah. Maybe next time. But yeah, so this poor man, this dad, starts attacking Bond. And then Bond just quickly punches him, like, straight away into the newspaper machine down below. And he lands into, like, this pit where all the newspaper is going. And then a load of blood just appears on all the newspapers that are coming out. So Bond takes a look and says, they'll print anything these days. Which, solid line. Yeah. Solid line. But Mm -hmm. I just felt too sad from this just, like, poor dude. Because it's not like, oh, we had to fight him. He was just there to get shredded. I don't know why the manic guy who could take the punches to the head didn't get shredded. They instead sent somebody else who just looks like a regular person and have him get shredded and have his blood and guts all over the news i'm gonna sound really dumb here i didn't even read that as blood when i first watched it what do you it, it so clearly it is i thought it was just ink given that they were on like a a paper line but of course it's going to be blood if a guy's just got thrown in the machine oh no <laughs> yeah and it might be the only time we see blood in the whole film yeah it may be oh that poor guy i know go back and get a picture of him dude that's R.I.P. That one guy who just was trying to be good at his job. So Bond threw him into a giant machine. He got absolutely shredded. And then Bond made a joke about it. I'm going to look him up on IMDb. I'm going to find this actor. And I'm going to send him a message. <laughs> What's that message? Y- you you got done dirty in Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> He's probably just happy he was in a Bond film, to be honest. The actual <laughs> actor himself anyway. The character is, uh, again, the saddest thing I've seen. Yeah, well... Oh. Well, way to bring down the podcast, Tom. I do what I do. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, so then we cut to Bond leaving and he's in another part of the warehouse where it's all just the giant paper reels where they're all in a big... like, um, Yeah, they're all kind of wrapped up. So the Bond theme starts playing for, like, no reason as Bond is just walking through the warehouse. But somebody starts shooting at Bond, so he starts running, and at this point he then ducks and runs away, and, oh, this is so bad. And then there's a trolley, like what you would see in a warehouse, where you put something heavy on it so you can pull it along. So Bond, with the Bond theme playing in, like, full force, jumps on the trolley and just, like, slides along the floor while everyone's shooting at him. And then he just gets to these closing big doors, rolls underneath it, and he escapes. And, oh, this was so bad. This might be the worst use of the Bond theme ever. I really hated it. It was The thing is, is it wasn't even a normal Bond theme. To me, it was almost like a uh, Broadway version, like a show tune version. <laughs> it was really kind of flourishy. And especially for this use of it, if you're going to do something like that, if you're really going to... Because it does sound different to a, a normal Bond theme. If you're going to do that and make it sound extra special, have it for an extra special moment. Yeah. Not just Bond sliding on a pallet for a little bit. It, that is bizarre. It is bizarre. But yeah, it's a double whammy because the Bond theme shouldn't have been used here, but also it just looked really stupid. Pierce Brosnan sliding along the floor on this. Like... You had your scene, you had your fight, you had your quip. It was a good quip 
thumbs up for the quip. And now you just have to do this like awkward thing of him escaping that you could have just cut to him outside. Just get rid of the scene. Mm, that would have been better. Yeah. I don't know if this is the Moby version of the Bond theme, though. This might be where it's used. Oh. So, oh, yeah, part of the soundtrack. Yeah. I don't know if it was actually used in the film, but as part of the official OST, there's a version of the Bond theme that Moby did. I actually really do like that Bond theme, though. I can't think of it. If it wasn't part of the score, I can't think of it. I th- uh, It's kind of similar to what we hear. Like It's very techno and all that sort of stuff, obviously. But um, no, I don't think we hear it in the film itself. Okay, that that's probably for the best. I, I can't think of it. I need to go check it out. It's the one that has sort of samples from previous films, doesn't it? I'm, sure I'm it has, not sure. I can't remember it, dude. Yeah, I think it has like lines from Goldfinger in it or something like that. Like lines from previous villains. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode 18 of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Tom next time where Bond is captured in Saigon escapes a helicopter on a bike with Wei Lin, with the two then teaming up to infiltrate the stealth ship and take on Carver. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two.